continue in our series, A Thrill of Hope, um, as we have been journeying through this time of Advent and looking at the different themes of Advent, but in addition to the different aspects of hope. And um, last week, uh, Pastor Eric took us through uh, wisdom, and uh, this week we are going to be taking a look at a hope for a future, a hope for a future. Now, it's interesting to talk about the future because in doing so, um, it's incredibly complicated, isn't it? Talking about the future is not easy. It's sticky, it can be frustrating, um, and it's just incredibly difficult to know what's going to happen in the future, isn't it? And yet we all want to know, don't we? We all want to know what's going to happen in the future because we know what happens in the future will determine how we will live or what we will do today, right? I don't know about you, but I always enjoy those movies that, you know, Back to the Future, right? Uh, where, you know, Marty, you know, goes into the future and, and alters in many ways his and not only that, his family and not only that, the entire town's future as a result of that. And what a great thing if we could go into the future and find out what it is that it's going to be like, what it is that we're going to be doing in the future. You know, maybe even as morbid as this sounds, maybe when we're going to die or what we're going to die from in the future, right? As morbid as that may sound. But it is incredibly difficult to talk about the future. There are a few things I want to share with you, a few quotes that some prominent people have shared about the future. And quite frankly, um, it's not always encouraging. Soren Kierkegaard, a late 20th century theologian, said this, Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Great! Not incredibly helpful. But still, some wisdom in that. George Orwell, the author of the book 1984 and Animal Farm and books like that, which if you've ever read any of them, you know, they're kind of depressing. Well, his view of the future isn't much better. He says, if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Not incredibly encouraging, is it? Here's the other thing. Winston Churchill, and I love this. He says this, I always avoid prophesying beforehand because it is much better to prophesy after the event has already taken place. Right? <laughs> um, finally, and that's, and that's what makes kind of telling the future so interesting. I, and I, and I, I'll be honest with you, this past election and everything when I hear pastors making predictions about who's going to be elected president, I, I just cringe. I'll be honest with you. And there were pastors who were making predictions about who was going to win the election. And more than that, pastors who were predicting when Jesus Christ is going to come back and they, and they picked a specific day. And I always cringe because I realize, oh no, if it doesn't happen that way, how much damage is done to the Christian faith when that doesn't happen? How much damage is done? I had a Greek professor in college because I wanted to give myself, you know, an easy way to take a foreign language and I decided to take Greek in the New Testament because why not? And I set the bar, by the way, for Greek in the New Testament. They would not allow after that any freshman in that class who did not have previous Greek experience. That's how hot that set the bar in that class. She said this about the coming of the Holy Spirit and she was a wonderful professor, a charismatic person. She was wonderful and she said this, 
I don't know when the when Jesus Christ is coming back, but I know when he probably isn't coming back, and it's oftentimes those who predict when he's coming back. Right? And I love how this last person says this. When you try to predict the future and you are wrong about it. And here's the thing. When pastors did this, particularly this last election cycle, and it did not go the way that they had stated it would go, um, one pastor actually came out and apologized for it. And I thought, that's great. You ought to apologize. Because if these things do not come to fruition, great damage has done because of that. And that's why I love what this last person, Edgar Fiedler, says about the future. He who lives by the crystal ball soon learns to eat ground glass. Man. A future, and talking about the future is really difficult, isn't it? Often asked, aren't we? What's the future going to be like? What's going to happen in the future? What's, you know? And honestly, it's hard to say what's going to happen, and yet that doesn't stop us from asking the questions. And here's the thing, is that we want to know, we almost need to know what is going to happen in the future. Because as I stated earlier, what happens in the future will determine how we live today. Our attitude, our actions, how are we going to live today is oftentimes determined by the future that we are looking to. And so if we believe that there is not a very good future in mind, if we believe that our future is not going to be very good, that most likely will impact the way that we live today. Let me give you an example, okay? Atheists oftentimes are considered, and, and apparently the stats bear this out, atheists are some of the most hopeless people on the face of the planet. Because honestly, what happens after we leave this earth? What happens after we die? For an atheist, it often is, um, well, that's it. Show's over. An agnostic is really, as one person said, um, you know, an atheist with a yellow streak, um, is, you know, we don't know what happens. Well, we don't know is not a comforting thought either. And so if this is all there is to life, if this is it, and when we die, game over, show's over, that's it, where is the hope. Where is the hope? Where is the sense that, you know what, there has got to be more. And you know, here's the thing, is that I think intuitively as human beings, not just as Christians, but as human beings in general, we have this innate desire, this innate sense, this innate hole in our beings that we say, you know what, there has to be more. This life cannot be all that there is. We have this yearning for eternity, don't we? And you don't have to be a Christian. We want more to this life than what we have right now. There is that yearning for it. We want that. And so here's the thing that I love about the Scriptures, is that the Scriptures oftentimes put together future and hope. Perhaps one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture that does this is Jeremiah 29, Verse 11, and it says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, the only way those two words are connected together, those two words are connected together, future and hope. The only way we can have hope is if there is a bright future. And the only way that we can have a bright future 
is that is a reason for us to have hope. If there wasn't done, if there wasn't a bright future, then there's no reason to have hope. But I love what the Bible says, is that there is every reason to have hope because our future is a bright one. Our future is a good one. So this morning, we're going to talk about the future. And in doing so, here's the thing. I am not going to sit up here today, or stand up here, I'm standing, not sitting. I am not going to stand up here today and tell you what the future is going to be about. And I give you details about future for your life and my life. I'm not going to do that. I am not going to make prognostications. There's another word for you. Prognostications about who is going to be the next president or what's going to happen in our country or our world. I'm not going to say those things because I have no clue, honestly, because God hasn't revealed that to me. I hope he does. And if he does, I'll share it with you. Be it very timidly. Okay? Very carefully. In fact, that is the thing that we have to realize, myself as a pastor, is that when, we, when I stand up here, any other pastor who stands up here, the unbelievable sense of humility has to rest on each and every one of us. Because you know what? As a pastor, I haven't figured it all out. And as a pastor, I may get things wrong. In fact, have gotten things wrong, even in my understanding of the Scriptures. And to understand that we do not have it all figured out. And that's okay. That's okay. And on this side of heaven, we won't have it all figured out. But nonetheless, what we're going to do today is take a look at least at three specific things that the future involves. Three specific things that the future, invo- that the future involves from the passage that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 25. Now, This story that we are going to look at is an incredibly familiar story. And here's what I think is so interesting about the story we're going to look at. Luke, out of all the four gospel books that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke, I believe, in my sense, gives perhaps the best, most detailed accounting of the birth of Jesus Christ, which I think is incredibly interesting. Here's why. Luke was a Gentile. Luke was not a part of the original 12 disciples. Luke was a physician by trade. Luke was one who was a colleague or partner with Paul. He was not around when Jesus actually walked the earth. He may, I don't know if there's even any sense that he would have met Jesus or encountered Jesus at all. Most likely did not at all encounter Jesus while Jesus walked on the earth. And yet here we have a Gentile giving us perhaps the most detailed birth narrative of Jesus that we find in the Gospels among all of the Gospels in which three out of the four at least walked with Jesus. Or at least two of them did. We're there, saw and was interacting with Jesus. John has a very different perspective of the birth story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Mark is just in a hurry. Jesus was born, let's move on. He was baptized. Moves right on to the baptism and then right into the you know, desert. 40 days of time. My mark is just dips right through it. Matthew gives us a genealogy, which is a beautiful thing. We're going to go there someday, not today. Amen. But Luke gives us an incredibly detailed account of the birth narrative of Jesus. And today we're going to take a look at an incredibly interesting account after Jesus has been born, and that is his dedication at the temple. And we're going to encounter a couple of people that Mary and Joseph encounter 
as they are dedicating Jesus at the temple. One pastor, and I think it's great, he called it the weirdest child dedication you will ever witness. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage, and through this passage, we are going to see three things that the future involves. And the first thing that the future involves is this. The future involves waiting. The future involves waiting. Now, let's take a look at this passage here. Uh, chapter 2 of Luke, beginning with verse 25, and listen to what this says. Mary and Joseph have gone up to Jerusalem. They're getting ready to dedicate Jesus. He's been about eight days old or so. This is customary for them to do this. And it starts here. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And I love those two words that describe Simeon. We do not know much about this man But at least what we do know so far is that he was both righteous and devout. Righteous being he was in a right relationship with God and himself as well as with others. He was righteous and not only that, he was devout, incredibly faithful in his relationship with the Lord. And it goes on and he says this, and he was looking for the consolation or the comfort or the encouragement of Israel. Now, keep in mind that the context in which this is written, the context in which Simeon shows up, the context in which Jesus was born into, and now Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to Jerusalem, to the very temple to have him dedicated, there was what you could call pretty dark times in Israel. Not that they were the darkest of times, but they were not the best of times either. In that time, remember, Israel was occupied by a foreign force, by the Romans. But the Romans were very shrewd in the way that they occupied a land, and particularly with Israel. When they occupied Israel, they discovered very quickly that Israel was not going to play by the Romans' rules. In other words, they were not going to worship the gods that the Romans worshipped, and they were not going to put up with anything like that. And they resisted it so much that Rome finally said, fine, I'll make you a deal. We will not set a garrison there, but I tell you what, you keep paying taxes and you can worship your god, okay? Now, to even enforce that, though, the Romans did put into power a guy by the name of Herod. Herod the Great. King Herod, as he was often known. He was the only one, by the way, that would have that title. And the way he got that title was he knew how to kiss up to the right people in Rome to get that title. He was very shrewd. He was a credibly shrewd guy. But not only that, he was incredibly ruthless in his rule. He had his wife killed. He had one of his sons killed. Uh, it was just, if, they, if anyone represented a threat, whether inside his own family or outside, he had them removed. When he came to Jerusalem, there was the Sadducees, who were the priests who took care of the temple. He had the majority of them, 40 some odd of them out of 70 some odd priests, killed because they would not support his reign. Now, not only that, he not only did those things, but even when he was on his deathbed, there was a edict or an order that he put out saying, when I am on my deathbed, you are to round up the religious leaders and put them in the arena. And at the time of my death, you are to slaughter them all because he knew this, that he was not liked by the Jewish people. He was not honored by the Jewish people. He was not respected by the Jewish people. But he said, you know what? There will be mourning at my funeral. Luckily, those plans didn't come to fruition. His sister, Herod's sister, freed those people after he died. But Nonetheless, here's the other thing that was going on, is that their own religion, the Jewish people's religion, was not necessarily their own. It, too, was controlled by Herod. 
Herod did a couple of things. First of all, he expanded the temple into a great, unbelievable structure in those days. Now, he did it for a couple of reasons. One was he was trying to ingratiate himself with the Jewish people. But secondly, he tried and had a purpose of having the temple as an enormous tourist attraction in which people from all over the Roman world would be able to come and marvel at this structure and be taken in by this structure. And in order to participate, you would have to go and you would pay things and turn it into a marketplace, which is why Jesus goes in there and turns the tables over. Because it was an incredible tourist attraction. Right? There are some beautiful churches today that are tourist attractions, aren't they? Beautiful tourist attractions. One of my favorites, Colorado Springs Air Force Base. Have you been to the chapel there? That is a beautiful structure. Gorgeous structure. Just absolutely gorgeous. Um, in some ways, that was the temple. And not only that, King Herod made the priests, the high priest, served at the discretion of the king and the Roman authorities. And so Cephas, who was the high priest during that time, he and Herod got along. And the only reason why Cephas and Herod were able to get along so well and be in power along with Pontius Pilate is that they cooperated. In other words, Cephas, it was viewed as giving up or giving into the Roman authorities to maintain his own authority. And to even make things worse is that any time the priests needed to go and get their vestments, the robes in which they would wear for the services in the temple, they didn't store them themselves. They were not allowed to. They would have to go to a Roman structure and get the vestments from there because the authorities kept those vestments in their places. And not only that, in these times, remember, there were tensions, although there was also cooperation, but there was still tensions between Gentiles and Jews. It was not a good time. Oh, and on top of that, remember, God hadn't sent a prophet in their midst for over 400 plus years. Straight silence. It was an incredibly difficult, dark time. And so when Simeon, it says here, describing who he is and looking for that comfort of Israel, you could imagine him being at the temple. And as he's watching these families, these parents bring their children to the temple to be dedicated, you could almost imagine him saying, God, is this the one? Nope. God, is this the one? Nope. God, is this the one? Nope. Over and over and over and over again. And yet, he waited. He absolutely waited there. Until finally, finally, in verse 26 it said this. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. At some point, the Holy Spirit told him, you will not die until you actually see the Savior. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've shared this before. I'll share it again. Waiting is not my forte. Waiting is not my forte. I hate to wait. Lines are a bother to me. They just are. I went to the post office a couple of weeks ago, right, to return a package. You can imagine how big and long that line was right? It's just crazy. And then, of course, you get to people who don't know how to use the chip reader and they're putting the card in wrong or they're putting it with the backwards or they're... It's just complicated, right? Holding up the line, 
right? And then writing a, who writes a check anymore? God bless you. Bless your heart. <laughs> right? But we wait in lines, don't we? Here's some stats I came across about waiting in line. This should not surprise any of us. Guess who has to wait in line the longest? New Yorkers. New Yorkers lead the nation in wait time. According to a 25-city survey, New Yorkers spend an average of 6 minutes and 51 seconds waiting in individual store lines. Miami comes in second at 6 minutes and 44, 6 minutes and 44 seconds. And guess who spends the least amount of time in lines? Clevelanders. Clevelanders. They spend just 4 minutes and 33 seconds in line. Which lines do people hate the most standing in? Grocery store checkout lines. Can't stand it. In fact, it found that half of those people would not even return to those stores because of those long lines. We do everything we can to not have to stand in line or have to wait. We do not want to wait at all. We don't want to do it. I mean, it's Christmas time. Think about it as we were children at one time, right? And you begin to see the Christmas presents come out and being put around that Christmas tree. And you have to wait until Christmas Day to open them. I mean, that is just torture. That is just pure torture to a kid. All those wonderful Christmas presents, and you can't touch them until Christmas Day. Right? Now, it's not so much the waiting. It's interesting that may be the issue here. It's what we do in the waiting that may be the issue. It's interesting... Uh, there was an article in New York Times that tells the story of how executives at the Houston airport, at least one of the airports, faced and then solved a cascade of passenger complaints about the long waits at the baggage claim. They first decided to hire more baggage handlers, redu- reducing wait time to an industry-beating average of only eight minutes. But the complaints still persisted. And this made no sense to the ex- executives until they discovered that, on the average, passengers took just one minute to walk to the baggage claim resulting in a hurry-up-and-wait situation. The walk time, or it's the walk time was not the problem, but the remaining seven empty minutes of staring at the baggage carousel was. So in a burst of innovation, guess what the executives at this airport did? They moved the arrival gates farther away from the baggage claim area. Passengers now had to walk much farther to get their bags, but were often waiting for them when they arrived. Problem solved. The complaints went away. And this is interesting, according to the researcher, is that it is not the waiting that is necessarily the problem. It is what we are doing while we wait. You know what? For Christians, we shouldn't have this problem. We should not have this problem. Yes, we have to wait. And some of us, maybe many of us, maybe all of us are saying, oh, come Lord Jesus, come. Please, come Lord Jesus, come. And we are waiting. And the problem with that is, is what are we doing in the waiting? And Jesus addressed this. When He ascended into heaven, He gave us what is known as the Great Commission. And He said, go and make disciples. Right? Go and make disciples of all the earth. And not only that, in doing so, He gives us the Holy Spirit to do so. In other words, as Christians, we should not be sitting around doing nothing, waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. There was a reason that Jesus gave us the assignment because it was going to be a long wait. Because He loves humanity. 
Peter himself says that. It's not as though that God is being slow about his coming. It's that he's being patient because he doesn't want a single person to die. The question is this. If you are one of those Christians who are just sitting around just waiting and you are just like you are just impatient about it, the question I would ask you is, are you doing what Jesus commanded you to do? Go and make disciples. Get busy. It's not the wait that's the issue. It's what you're doing during the waiting that's the issue. Jesus isn't coming yet. He will, but he hasn't come yet. And there's another reason why I think the waiting is so important and why the future involves waiting. One person, Richard Hendricks, says this, Second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness. Remember, Jesus isn't interested in just saving us. He is interested in transforming us making us in his likeness. And I don't know about you, but I have a long way to go. Waiting is the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us will ever encounter. I love how, and I I think this is so true when people share with me, and even I have shared it, oh, I need more like fruit of the Spirit, right? Oh, Jesus, give me more patience. And then you find yourself in situations where you are impatient. What do you think God is doing? Trying to develop patience in you, right? Oh, Jesus, give me gentleness. And all of a sudden you find yourself in situations where it's, you've got to be gentle. What do you think Jesus is doing? Trying to develop that fruit of the Spirit in your life and in mine. There is value to waiting. And there was value to Simeon although he was absolutely there and waiting and waiting and waiting, and for any of us, we might have been understandably so frustrated by this. Simeon, as far as we could tell, was not frustrated. Maybe there were days he was disappointed. Maybe there were days he was let down. Maybe there were days that he just thought, is the Savior ever going to come? But here's the thing. He kept going to the temple. He kept going to the temple. He kept doing what God called him to do. And we need to do the same thing. Waiting is not the issue. It's what are we doing while we wait. No matter what the future brings, and it is involved waiting, we have been given a task and we need to go fulfill that task. Don't sit around and wait for Jesus to come. It will be miserable. It will not be good. It will not be healthy. Get out there and make disciples. Serve. Share the gospel. Bring people to Jesus. And before you know it, he will be here. And you'll be like, where did the time go? Simeon, I cannot help but think, as much as we know of him, was absolutely devout and righteous in the fact that he waited and was busy in that waiting. So, that's the one thing. The future involves waiting. Here's the second thing. The future involves conflict. The future involves conflict. I, it's hard to say that, but I believe it is true. Take a look at the following verses here. Verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now just picture this for a moment. Mary and Joseph have brought Jesus in to, this, to the temple to get him dedicated And this strange older gentleman comes along and says, can I hold your baby? 
They've not met this guy. They don't know who this guy is. By the way, the temple was probably just filled with people. Remember, this isn't a quiet thing. The temple was a constant buzz of activity. You know, hundreds, if not thousands of people would be at the temple nearly every day or around the temple. This was not something that was a quiet place which one could just interact uh, in the way that we might think they were interacting here. And out of all of the hustle and bustle, out of all the people there, this young, this older gentleman comes up to this young couple and says, can I hold your baby? And they agree. And Simeon takes Jesus into his arms and bless God and said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bond servant to depart in peace. It is now fulfilled. I am whole. I can die in peace knowing that you have finally sent your Savior according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Wow! This is incredible. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this Christ is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Uh Uh-oh. And it doesn't get any better. Verse 35. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Oh, Simeon had it right at the beginning there. Yes, God's salvation is here. It's wonderful. Light to the Gentiles and to the glory of Israel. And then he goes, uh, but things are not going to go well. There's going to be conflict. In many ways, the understanding of what Simeon was saying here, particularly to Mary at this point, was that Jesus was going to cause people to either accept God or to reject God. Culminating, as many believe, in the crucifixion of Jesus Himself. And for a mother to witness her son going through that incredible agony of being crucified would be incredibly hurtful to her own heart. But I think there is something we need to realize as well is that for us as Christians, I believe that that sword not only pierced her heart, but for anybody of us who love Jesus, it will also pierce ours. Here's the reality of what it means to follow Jesus, is that Jesus brings conflict. Jesus said it Himself. He said, I did not come to bring peace, but rather a sword. And it will divide mother and daughter. Even says mother-in-law and daughter-in-laws, like Jesus needed to do that. Um... Fathers and sons, divide, unbelievable, come in and divide people. Jesus himself said that. What is he saying? What does that mean? Here's what I think it means is that as a result of us and as a result of Jesus and us choosing to follow Jesus is that inevitably there will be conflict. We will have conflict with each other. We will have conflict with others who reject Jesus. We even see it now. We have seen it all the way through the history of Christianity, that there has been conflict, that those who have followed Jesus have been at conflict with those who chose not to follow Jesus. And particularly those who have chosen not to follow Jesus oftentimes have conflict with those who follow Jesus. And it goes back and forth. It happens. That relationships might get fractured. That that it just is incredibly tense 
thing. You might even have experienced that in your own families. And you know the holidays are here. And chances are you may be going to families' houses, or maybe not, maybe because of COVID, now it gives you a great excuse not to go. I don't know. But all of a sudden, going to families' homes, and where they may not be believers, but you are a believer, and they might look at you and, and judge you, and you might even be tempted to judge them. That's, it's conflict. There is division. It happens. But more than that, there is conflict within ourselves. There is a piercing within ourselves. And the fact is that we come to grips with the fact that we are sinful, we are broken, we are people who are in need of healing, and we need to address the sinfulness in our lives. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. We have to look at our own lives and acknowledge that we are not right. And Jesus causes conflict in our very own person. Because we have to deal with that. It's kind of like, and Scripture points to this, anytime people encounter God or Jesus, particularly with their own issues, it's inevitably a conflict. Think of Jacob wrestling with God, right? Just before he was to go out and meet Esau the next day, his older brother, whom he had kind of cheated out of birthright and inheritance, Right? And he struggled. Did Jacob, he walked away with that wrestling with God with a limp. He was not the same as he was before he wrestled with God. He had to come to grips with the fact of who he is and some of the things in his own life that had caused this conflict. And he had to wrestle with that. And that is inevitable for any of us is that we have to wrestle with God because of the vision that He causes in our own lives, because of the sin that is brought up about what we are, who we are, and what we have done. And we have to wrestle with those things. In fact, I find it interesting, J.C. Riley in his book, Holiness, he says this, and this is something that I don't think is always described as a Christian life. He says that there are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. They make a profession of faith in Christ Their names are on the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as a Christian when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man, and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable. But it certainly is not the Christianity of the Bible. It is not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and His apostles preached. It is not the religion which precedes real holiness. True Christianity is a fight. For any of us who know Jesus, if we have not yet been changed, if we have not yet in some ways like Jacob carry some sort of scars by wrestling with God that we can point to and say, yeah, I got that scar when I wrestled with God about this sin in my life. That was a battle. I walked away alive. I'm just grateful for that. You know? Um, Man, we've we've got to check ourselves on that stuff. I think sometimes we do a great disservice when we say, if you come to know Jesus, everything will be wonderful with you. You will have a wonderful life. Everything will be peaceful. And the reality is, yes, that is true. However, to get to that point, we've got to wrestle with God. 
We've got to go through some conflict. In other words, the way to peace is through conflict. The way to wholeness is through painful healing. Think of it as rehab. I don't know how many of you have been through rehab. If you've had surgery on a knee or on an arm or whatever else, and you've had to go to rehab as a result. Rehab is incredibly painful. They make you do unbelievable things to try to get those limbs that were once not working well to once again work well so that you can enjoy using those limbs once again. It's incredibly painful, but it's painful with a purpose of full healing in mind. That it is with us as well, I believe, in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ wants to heal us, but the way to that healing is through an awful lot of conflict and pain. That's what the future holds. It's going to involve conflict. Whether externally or internally, it's going to involve conflict. Here's the third one. And this gets better. The future involves freedom. There is light at the end of the tunnel, I believe. There is hope at the end of this. Take a look at verse 36 of Luke chapter 2. And this is an interesting one because not only was Simeon there, but now we're going to find out, as verse 36 says, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow at the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Again, here, much like Simeon, older in years, but now a widow. She's 84 years old at this point. And now she has spent her time waiting, but not only that, waiting intentionally by going to the temple and praying and fasting. And all of a sudden, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. In other words, as Simeon is giving this blessing and then also telling a little bit of what's going to happen to Jesus, Anna comes up now and gives thanks to God for this wonderful gift. And not only that, of all the people that are milling around the temple, she turns to everyone who's there, who is willing to hear, this is the Savior of Israel. This is the one whom God has promised. He is here right now. Look at this beautiful little baby. And you could only imagine, you know, Mary and Joseph going, all we wanted to do was come and dedicate. And now look at all the stir it's causing. I mean, Anna is now praising the fact that this, is who we have been looking for. This child is going to redeem us. This child is going to rescue us. This child is going to free us. This is the child. What a beautiful thing. What an unbelievable thing. We will have freedom from sin and death and the conflict those things bring. That is the freedom that Jesus will give us. That is the future we have. And you know what? Scripture is clear about this over and over and over again. Let me just share with you a couple of passages. I'm going to go through them really quick. I do not have them for the screen. Just listen to these. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven and for, from it we, wait, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of heaven and we wait anxiously for Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 verses 3-4 through He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you and for me. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18 For this light 
momentary affliction. I love how Paul says that. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Romans 8.18 The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is being revealed to us. Revelation 22.12 simply says this, Jesus, behold, I am coming soon. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 21 through 23. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Amen? That is our future. Our future is freedom. Our future is absolute, unbelievable fellowship with our Lord and Savior. And I believe that future is going to involve a new earth and a new heaven in which we will be able to once again dwell on this earth in unbelievable peace and harmony with each other, with nature. I mean, right now nature's messed up, isn't it? Right? I mean, there's a reason why animals run away from humans typically. They have an instilled fear. Oh, they can kill me. They may want to eat me. I'm going to run away. Right? We will one day live on earth. Well, that will not happen. We can go up to a lion and pet the lion. He ain't going to bite us. We can swim with alligators. I don't know why, but we could. We can swim with sharks. How you doing today? And don't have to worry about being jaws. Right? We can do these things. That is the future. We can go and ride deer. Not Arizona deer. They're a little emaciated if you ask me. You know, we can have... This is going to be a wonderful thing. We, you know, it's just going to be a beautiful future here that we have. We will be free. And we will live in a new reality, a new earth, a new heaven in which all of a sudden those things that have once held us back, that have weighed us down, will be lifted and we will be redeemed, rescued, saved, and free. That is our future. It's not an easy path to get there, but I believe that's intentional. So this is my hope for us. Corey Ten Boom said this, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. You may be here today and you may be uncertain about the future. I get it. There's a lot to be uncertain about. And yes, the future will involve some hard things. And yes, we will have to wait. And yes, on the other side will be a wonderful thing of us being free. But more than that, even in the midst of this uncertainty that we may still have, we can know one thing. And that is Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ. We can know Him. And by knowing Him, we can know God the Father. And so my hope is, is that all of us, that we will know, not necessarily the future, but more than that, that we will want to know the God whom Jesus has revealed. Because He wants to be known. And He has been made known. That's where I would encourage us to rest. 
is in Jesus, who reveals God the Father. And with that, the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, who is present with us right now, encouraging us, saying, you can do this. Keep hanging on. Go make disciples. Go serve. Keep going. I am coming soon. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, the future, as you know, is just filled with uncertainty. And yet, Jesus, no matter what the uncertainty may be, we can be certain of this. We can know you. We can know you and we can have a relationship with you. And we not, not only that, Jesus, we can put our faith in you. And Jesus, this morning, I pray for anyone here who might be listening or watching online, Jesus, that if they have not yet embraced you, Jesus, I pray that today they would. That today would be the day that they would not only call you Lord and Savior, but they would follow you because you are our Lord and Savior. I pray, Jesus, that you would give us great comfort and hope and peace in the future that you have for us. 